Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Everybody suffers. We just do. Whether we have too much credit card debt, student loans that will never pay off, underemployment, political frustration, medical debt, challenging relationships, road rage, or our children are facing a problem we don't know how to solve, the amount of suffering that is a given and a part of what we deal on a day-to-day basis and just part of the deal of being alive, it's overwhelming. I really enjoy having meditation teachers on this show because they bring stories of how they feel like a dynamic character in their own story. They can change, they can grow, they can improve. Personal challenge, anger, or frustration mounts up and they find a new tool they can use to wield their own mental state and they use it to hone their approach to life over many decades. My guest on this episode is Mark Coleman, a British meditation teacher who has been practicing meditation for more than three decades. In the early pages of his book, From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, Mark describes being immersed in his own anger while shuffling around the punk scene of England. Now, if you know anything about me and my interest in music, you'll know that Mark's book hooked me then and there when he started talking about punk rock music. I couldn't help but ask him about his past in music and how that scene still resonates with him today. Just like my years spent heavily immersed in the music scene still resonates with me. From there, our conversation steers into a discussion of mindfulness, the misconceptions of the practice, learning how to take in the immediacy of each passing moment, moments we'll never get back, mind you, and also some discussion around Mark's experiences with physical pain, a topic I know well from recent back and knee surgeries. Mark's new book, From Suffering to Peace, is out now from New World Library one of the longest and strongest advocates of this show. I cannot thank them, the team there, enough for all they've done for me and continue to do for me, such as um, hooking me up with fantastic guests such as Mark. They've been helping me now for about two years and I'm super grateful to them for their support. As for Mark Coleman, you can find him at markcoleman.org. That's Mark with a K. And you can find him on Twitter at the handle MarkColeman365. You can follow me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas or at Facebook.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. If you like this show, please consider rating the show on iTunes or visiting me at Patreon.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. If you are a longtime listener or you're here for the first time, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I am grateful for your attention. So now without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mark Coleman. Mark Coleman, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you. Nice to be on your show. Can you just briefly introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Yeah, so I am a meditation teacher. I've trained in the Buddhist tradition for the last 35 years. And I'm from England. Uh, I'm an insight meditation teacher uh, based in California now. 
Um, I'm also a founder of the Mindfulness Training Institute, training teachers to share these mindfulness practices. And my passion and my love is to um, uh, take people out into nature with a contemplative awareness. So my first book, Awaken the Wild, really explores how we can bring mindfulness and awareness into nature. And so I lead a whole series of retreats and trainings around the world, mostly on the West Coast of the, the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, so my life is you know, passionately involved around mindfulness and meditation and sharing these practices widely. Excellent. Well, that's great. Um, you can refer to any of your books throughout the conversation. Uh, the focus of, that we're mostly going to talk about today is your brand new one, From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, just out from New World Library. But I want to start uh, back in time a little bit and talk about your youth, because you and I have something in common, and that we both grew up sort of like in the punk rock scene. Um, before you became a meditation practitioner, you were a punk rocker. Do you have any favorite bands from back in the day? Oh, many, many bands. The Clash, The Stranglers, uh, Susie and the Banshees. I, I sort of came at the sort of the, the latter end of the punk explosion in London. So it was, um, you know, the jam, some, some what I call sort of in the post-punk genre. Um, but also, you know, some classic old English band, Stiff Little Fingers and um, Damned. And, and then later think bands like The Cramps and... So, yeah, it was a great time to be in London as a as a punk, and uh, it was a wild scene back in the day. Awesome. I'm a huge Damned fan. Um, <clears throat> I love uh, Wait for the Blackout on the Black Album. Um, it's just so fantastic. And, you know, and what's interesting is, uh, speaking of the jam, I lived in the town of Woking in Surrey, where Paul Weller's from. Um, mm. So that was a lot of fun. There was like a Paul Weller statue right in the middle of town, right by the train station. <laughs> That's um, funny. Yeah. So, you know, I've had a bunch of punk rockers on the show because like, I gravitate towards punk rockers within this spiritual community. Like I've had Jimmy Yu from the hardcore band Judge. I've had Miguel Chen from Teenage Bottle Rocket, Chris Grasso from Occult Knife, and Ray Capo from Shelter, Brad Warner from Zero Defects on the show. And these are all guys who have come out of the punk scene and turned to meditation, Buddhist meditation, Hindu practices, etc. So what do you have a theory as to why punk rockers dig meditation? Well, that's an interesting question. I've never really put it in that frame, but you know, the Buddhist teaching, you know, he framed it as against the stream and punk uh, in its essence is very much against the stream, against mainstream norms, against sort of certain cultural, you know, you know values and so i think there's a, the, the, in, in both scenes even though buddhism presents itself as somewhat more you know maybe conservative or traditional actually its essence is quite radical and it's really going against the norm of of, of the culture you know which is to consume and to you know look outside yourself for happiness and and so i think there's something in both scenes you get a certain kind of anti-establishment slightly anarchic rebellious quality um in you know in the monks that i've sat with in asia and also in the punk scene so there's something some dovetailing there nice um you write in the book about you know being like living in a chaotic sort of life as a young punk kid like with your mohawk and just kind of like feeling internal anger what are your clearest memories of being that young punk kid and finding meditation for the first time like how did this transition go uh, occur yeah, well, I, um, you know, there I am in my, my white mohawk. I used to make my own clothes and uh, pretty kind of funky and out there. 
And I was squatting houses, and they had to be squatting a, um, a Buddhist housing association house. <clears throat> and being Buddhist, they didn't kick me out. They're like, you know, go, <laughs> you should go, go meditate, young man, and sort yourself out. So it just happened to be – so they had a meditation center around the corner from where I was squatting. And um, I walked in, and I, this, I remember this moment to the day. I walked in, and people – and there was nothing special happening. There wasn't a class happening. People were just, you know, cleaning and working in the bookstore and making flowers, you know, doing, putting flowers on the altar and stuff. And people just had a sense of presence and dignity and clarity. And I, I you know, I'd come from a world where that was not the prevailing quality by any means. Mm. And and then I went to one of the meditation classes. And as happens when you first start to meditate, you know, I was busy blaming, judging, angry. You know, I was in sort of you know, movements to try and stop down, to stop the, uh, you know, the financial center and shut it down and demonstrations. And so I was very busy, you know, raging against the machine. And I'd never really taken a hard look inside and, and, and wondering why I was so unhappy, you know, inside. And so meditation really helped turn that lens of awareness to my own mind and heart and and patterns and habits and reactions and and I really it was a wake up call of saying oh this is where this is where I'm suffering this is this is where so much of what I'm doing is causing my unhappiness and so that really that moment uh, totally grabbed me and I've been looking and studying training for the last 35 ever since these last 35 years so since you've been working with this um is that punk kid still in you like do you retain some of the values but like have managed to deal with things in a better way do you is that how you see it well i definitely relate to the anti-establishment against the stream um you know I, i i do feel very strong and i was also i went to a college that was very socialist um, and, um, so I very much, uh, subscribe to those values and see the, the, the personal and collective pain that our current society and capitalist values, you know, the, creating the, the massive inequality of wealth and harming the planet, etc. So I've always retained that, um, sort of anti-establishment quality, um, politically, uh, even though now I, people look at me and they go, "How could you ever be a punk? You look so, you know, <laughs> you know, so straight." And, you know, <laughs> just. But uh, but the, you know, it's. I think I think the essence of that is is how, what you hold in your heart. Oh, for sure. You know, and like I grew up to be a high school teacher, and I would go to work every day, and it's high. But you know, I grew up listening to the Misfits and the Cro-Mags and all kinds of stuff right. like that. And it just kind of is. It's in you, despite what your outward appearance may look like. Awesome. Right. Well, I appreciate you sharing all those memories with me. I just love talking about stuff like that, especially because like, I gravitated to that right in the beginning of the book. I was like, yes, a punk rocker. This is going to be awesome. So <laughs> your brand new book, From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, is out now from my buds over at New World Library. I've had tons of guests on from them, and I love mm. that publishing house. In the mm-hmm. book, you say that if you ask 10 different teachers what mindfulness is, you will get 10 different answers. Well, I have one teacher, you, on the phone. <laughs> So very, very briefly, what is your definition of mindfulness practice? Well, the simple version, mindfulness is clear awareness. It's the simple knowing of what's happening as it's happening internally and externally. And my longer definition, it's the awareness of our physical, mental, emotional, and environmental experience with clarity, 
um, in service of understanding and insight. And I add that line in service of understanding and insight because you know one of the reasons I wrote the book is um, mindfulness has been reduced often you know, in, in, in its explosion in popularity to attention or to focus. And, you know, from the context of the tradition, you know, it's, a, it's embedded within a path of practice, understanding, insight, freedom of the heart and mind. And so I wanted to, to make sure people were seeing and understanding mindfulness in its proper context, which is really a path of moving from suffering to peace, from suffering to freedom. Yeah, I love how you wrote early in the book that uh, the misconstrued understandings of mindfulness and the, like, the whole mindfulness explosion around the world right now convinced you to write about it. Um, is there anything else that, that we get wrong, or is that did you kind of define that pretty clearly? Um, well, uh, yes, all kinds of things we get wrong in that... Um, uh, mindfulness uh, has, you know, that has been touted as the panacea for so many problems, right? And, and and mindfulness is, you know, it's a powerful practice tool, methodology, teaching, and like anything, it has its strengths and it has its limitations. And so, when I, you know, every week I hear some new research of, you know, mindfulness is good for weight loss or hair loss or sleep deprivation or whatever. And I'm like, well, maybe. Um, and what's really important is that it's it's a tool to really understand the heart and mind and understand the human condition. And that's really what I care to help people see the significance of. Do you see mindfulness as a secular or a religious practice or maybe both? Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I don't hold a hard line division between those two, and you know, I'm aware that you're coming, living, being born in England, where there's less of a division between church and state, where there's and it's very strong here, at least in theory. Um, and so, um, in the same way that I've been, you know, a Buddhist meditation teacher, but I've also been a psychotherapist and a coach and a consultant. And people ask me, oh, well, how could you go from, you know, being a Dharma teacher, meditation teacher, to therapy or to coaching and I say well um, it's not like I stop being and I throw out my my dharma training of 30 years when I'm therapy or coaching all of that is you know embedded within me and is informing how I work and so I feel the same with the spectrum of how mindfulness is taught you know mindfulness of course in a in a school situation with kids kindergarten high school whatever you know the the Buddhist roots, for the most part, are left out, partly because of that need to separate church and state. And um, at the same time, it's a continuum in the same way that you might go to a you know a Buddhist center and learn a, a meditation class. And it's very it may not like look that different than if you're learning mindfulness at work. Um, but because it's the, the beginning is you know it's a slow on ramp, and then over time. I think the difference is where where the, is in the depth. If you're learning mindfulness in a traditional setting, you know you will start with mindfulness of breath and very simple attention to you know various parts of your experience. But the point is to really understand and have deep insight into the human condition and the nature of reality. Whereas uh, a more secular class will stop more at um, you know 
basic awareness of, say, mind and body, um, and not have that whole contextual framework. So I just see it as, as a continuum from from shallow to deep. And um, appreciate one of the things I do appreciate about how mindfulness has has grown is that it is allowing people an an, an entry point that they wouldn't have necessarily found there's a big leap to go from your office to a buddhist retreat center in the woods right but it's not such a big jump to go from a lunchtime class offered in your company to then checking out an introductory class at a center and then going on a silent retreat nice well you sort of mentioned something interesting that intrigues me and that's the use of meditation and mindfulness practices in like corporate offices or in schools or in prisons or in um you know psychotherapy sessions uh, what have been some of your favorite uh, positive developments in the field in the last several years? In 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 the corporate space, or in the, in generally in the in schools, in corporate spaces, like what do you see as being like some of your like wow, that is so impressive. I'm so glad that was used there. Yeah, well, so um, so I've been teaching uh, in places like the UN. I was teaching in Senegal. Um, for, for regional and uh, country directors for the World Food uh, Aid Program. And so there's a lot of work now being done taking these practices to aid workers, to relief workers, particularly people uh, working in war-torn countries. I have a friend who's developed program, multiple programs through different UN agencies, and it's being taught in uh, Uzbekistan and in, in, in the Congo and in Libya and Afghanistan, where people, you know, are really on the front line of very, very painful, difficult, uh, you know, war situations. Um, so that's one, one, one example. I have uh, friends, and I've also done this myself, of bringing mindfulness into prisons and into juvenile justice uh, system and um, you know, giving people these these liberating practices while they're you know often living in pretty wretched conditions. Um, so I just see the practices being taken out into you know places where there's a lot of suffering, you know, immigration mm-hmm. shelters, and, um, and now there's a whole wave of trauma-sensitive mindfulness where um, these practices are being. Uh, more subtly refined to work with populations who've been traumatized, whether it's sexually or psychologically, um, or trauma from 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 combat. Um, I've done a lot of work with veterans, um, so it's really you know. So what I appreciate about it is, you know, the Buddha taught these practices as a as a as a way to relieve suffering, and so because of the popularizing or the secularizing, then these practices have much more, you know, easy access into the into the VA, for example, into sure. the Veteran Administration, um, or to kindergarten, or to, um, you know, now I have friends who are teaching this in hospice. Um, so, that, you know, there's a huge spectrum of human suffering, and uh, there's barely a place that I don't see these practices being offered and, and you know, bringing some, some relief. Excellent. Well, I mean, it, and if the methods work, I mean, think about all the people who are currently suffering, whether it's like, you know, in school or in prison or in therapy that, you know, maybe it'll work for them. So it's always worth a try. 
It's fascinating. Right. Um, there's a book I read recently called Prescribing the Dharma by a psychotherapist named Dr. Ira Helderman. Uh, and oh. he writes a lot about how it's being used as a spectrum within the psychotherapy field. And it's just so interesting. Um, so, yeah. So you mentioned a moment ago as well about like the path to like going on silent retreats. Um, and so I've had a practice for the past several years that I've tried to maintain. And no, I, I go on and off the wagon. Um, I've never done a silent retreat, though, for more than a single day. Um, and I feel like that could help me break through in a practice. So for anyone doing a practice of some kind and they maybe feel plateaued, how important do you feel the silent retreat could possibly be for them? Yeah, so, uh, you know, retreats have been, silent retreats have been part of the tradition for thousands of years, and there's good reasons for that. And certainly any teacher has tr who's you know, teaching and trained well has been, you know, probably done extensive silent retreat as, as I have done and my colleagues have done. And, um, you know, there's only so much that one can do in a daily practice, you know, mostly, you know, and a daily practice is important and helpful to develop, you know, a, a continuity uh, uh, of mindfulness practice and, um, but when we go on retreat, then we have the supportive conditions where we can unplug literally digitally, uh, but also from our lives and roles and responsibilities. And um, we can uh, immerse ourselves much more deeply into meditation. And the silence is a tremendous support for that. And, and there's a way that we can uh, develop samadhi, which is this balanced, unified quality of attention um, and the, the, the depth just opens up uh, infinitely. And so with that, with the, with the calm and the clarity that comes from being in a, in a retreat setting, then of course, the, with, that, with that clarity, then there's much more capacity for insight, for understanding, for letting go, um, and really uh, seeing more deeply our habits, our conditioning, and the human condition and, and finding ways to free ourselves from the ways that we suffer unnecessarily. So I would say for anybody who's, you know, starting or been practicing for a while that if you haven't done a silent retreat, then, uh, you know, that they're pretty available, um, at least, you know, in the States all over and, um, you know, try a weekend, try five days or a week. Um, they might sound intimidating because of silent, silent, how could they be silent for a week? But actually the silence piece is the easy part. Mm. Um, and it just, it's actually a very beautiful, rich, uh, delicious um, dive into, into, into some depth, stillness. Um, and they're profound. They're, 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 they're life-changing for, for people. You know, and the, the the range of suffering, so we think about this term, and I know that it's defined differently by different people, but you'd also think about something like um, unsatisfactoriness, right? Yes. Okay, so whenever I'm thinking about this term, I think about like the daily banalities that... Um, that plague us all. So I like in meditation and practice to almost trying to like develop a superpower and taking control of myself and taking that control to like a new level. So a lot, I see a lot of people who are like out of control, like they tailgate, they drive erratically, they yell at their kids over dumb stuff, maybe like slam cabinets at home. And like, I've seen a lot of people say things like, well, I guess I have to do everything around here. 
you know, and they're in these states of emotional distress so much of their life, and they're doing things that are like unhelpful or maybe somewhat dangerous. So I see like a practice of meditation as like helping to cultivate the ability of being able to have things happen to you and choosing to respond in the moment in ways that are helpful instead of unhelpful. Do you see this like superpower analogy as being somewhat accurate in your view? Um, yes, and maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I don't know. If I'm, I'm not sure if I'd use the word superpower. It certainly is an amazing quality and um, tremendously helpful. And I think the reason why it's, you know, mindfulness becomes so popular is because, you know, we're living in times where, you know, the pace of life is incredibly fast. There's high stress levels. We're, you know, addicted and, 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 and consumed by technology. Yes. And our attention is pulled every which way. And, um, and as a society and as a culture, we haven't really done much to support people training their minds and finding calm and clarity and stillness and presence. And so, um, so in that way, you know, you could say it's a superpower in that it, it's giving people these this gift or this 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 um, tool of and set of techniques and ways to focus understand ourselves develop clarity um, find ease in the midst of stuff and particularly you know one of the one of the jewels that this teaching offers is to see how that we add to our suffering how through our reaction or avoidance or our judgment um, we, we, we create so much unnecessary suffering and that's really such a great liberating, uh, tool. Fantastic. Well, and I want to talk about something positive as well. So despite all those, like, you know, those irritations, um, another thing that you write about is experiencing the immediacy of each moment through a meditation and mindfulness practice. And I think about things that give me great pleasure, like going to see live music or riding a bike or like drinking a beer from a microbrewery or reading a book or just playing a board game on the floor with my daughter. How do you think that uh, doing a mindfulness practice can help us enjoy the good things in our life instead of just like dealing with the negative irritations? Yeah, no, that's a great question because it's true that, you know, Buddhists particularly can definitely orient Mm -hmm. more towards the suffering and the stress and the struggle. But um, as I was, I was teaching a course up in Portland yesterday and uh, I was having students go and have a mindful lunch, which means actually pay attention to your food rather than looking at your phone or talking or driving mm. or whatever. When you and, and he came back and said, oh, wow, that, that food, that lunch was amazing. And I said, well, was it any different than yesterday's lunch? No, it was exactly the same, but I just was present for it. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I talk a lot about how much joy mindfulness brings in that, you know, we live in a, an, on an amazing planet with amazing people and a lot of beauty around. There's also a lot of suffering around, but there's also a lot of beauty. It's summer right now and, the, you know, trees, flowers blooming and, um, and so when we're mindful, we, we have much more ability to be present and therefore if we're present, we can much more able to appreciate whether it's, you know, playing with your children or taking a walk in the woods or listening to music or any number of things. Um, you know, my experience is mindfulness has, I have tremendous access to joy 
and appreciation and gratitude and happiness and and well-being and you know those are beautiful qualities and especially because we live in times where there's so much stress so much anxiety if we can be mindful enough to actually enjoy what is here whether it's nature or beauty or people or whatever then it's it's a tremendous uh, source of happiness and well-being and also resilience you know we in these times we need a lot of resilience and if we're not able to enjoy and feel pleasure and appreciation and gratitude then we're we're not really supporting ourselves to be to sustain ourselves mm. so I, I i think i think of mindfulness as an inner sustainability practice there's a lot of talk about outer sustainability right now but actually it gives us the tools to be inwardly sustainable nice well, speaking of resilience, you and I not only have a background in the punk rock scene in common, but we also have uh, chronic back pain in common in which we uh-huh. have to be resilient. So I had back surgery in 2017 and I had knee surgery in 2015. And like my body has never been the way it was and it will never be what it was again. And that is just something that I'm just working with. Um, can you tell me about your back problems, how you've worked with it instead of against it in relation to your mindfulness and meditation practice? How does that help you with uh, pain management and uh, you know living your best life despite any limitations? Yeah, well, sorry to hear about your back pain. That never is a pleasant thing. And never. Yes, I've I've had you know various years of dealing with chronic back pain and spasms and um, you know often moves around the back but basically um and you know so i talk a lot in the book about how mindfulness um you know helps us work with difficulty particularly with the body whether whether it's aging or sickness or physical pain um mostly when we experience something we don't like like pain we we try to avoid it run away from it judge it blame it hate it contract around it and of course all of that movement uh is just causing unnecessary or additional suffering. And so mindfulness, this is why I think is an interesting um, contrast to how mindfulness is is, uh, portrayed. Um, Mindfulness is actually a radical confrontation meeting life as it is. And sometimes that means meeting physical pain, emotional challenges, life, difficult life circumstances. And it gives us the ability to simply face and meet and open to and acknowledge what's here without adding extra layers of struggle, resistance, suffering, blame. And so when we do that, we develop this quality of equanimity, which is the the ability to meet experience with some balance. We still don't necessarily like it or want it, um, but we're not suffering in the same way in our mind. So there's a simple equation that um, many people speak to that I write in the book, suffering equals pain times resistance, mm. right? So, so pain is inevitable, physical pain, emotional pain, but the suffering depends on how much, you know, how we relate to it, whether we're struggling, fighting, resisting, you know, and, and physical pain is a really easy example. If we, if we have physical pain, like back, I mean, the back's hurting, the, the the knee-jerk response is to not like it, not want it, and to contract. And, of course, when we contract the body around the pain, it just makes it worse. If we can actually notice the pain, feel the unpleasant sensations, relax around it, 
it doesn't make the pain go away, but it creates more ease in the body, which gives us more capacity to deal with it. Say you're sitting in meditation and your back is spasming as you're sitting. What is your internal monologue saying to you? Um, the monologue is, oh, <laughs> there's the back pain again. Uh, and then uh, notice the sensations, all right, twinging, tightening, burning, stabbing. And then... Uh, can you, you know, so I'm, you know, sometimes there's like a, a voice of a meditation coach. And so often that's nonverbal, but I'm just going to verbalize it for your listeners. Mm -hmm. So the, the coach would be, okay, take a couple of breaths, soften around it, soften into it, lean into it and bring some loving kindness to it. And so, and, and so the, the orientation is really around how much softening can I create around it or with it to not be adding fuel onto the fire? Hmm. That actually makes me feel a little better just listening to that for 20 seconds. And then also noticing, you know, everything's transient, right? So, yeah. um, so noticing the, the very, this, this thing that I monolithically call pain, back pain, Right? It's actually just a, a variety of moving, changing sensations. And when I, when I track that, you know, when I track the, the impermanent nature of it, it's like, okay, so it's there, but it's not always there, and it's changing, and other things call my attention. And I have the freedom of awareness to be able to move my attention wherever. So sometimes I'll be with it because that's what's necessary to lean into it. Other times it's really skillful to shift the attention away to actually get up from the meditation or to look outside or to, to, sh to align the attention to some, to some other experience that allows ease in the mind and the heart and the body. And so, so you know, mindfulness gives us the, the understanding that we have a lot of freedom in our awareness to, to direct the attention. Excellent. Well, you know, something else that strikes me is that a lot of uh, people who are listening might think that since you are like over three decades into a regular practice, that nothing bugs you. So I think that's a misconception. So I'm curious about what pushes your buttons, what pushes your abilities, and what still challenges you. Yeah, well, I would say the number one source of <laughs> My irritation is my computer, okay, <laughs> which I spend a lot of time on, and um, I'm not the most tech savvy of people, and um, so just there is is definitely grounds for some irritation. You know, whether it's not being able to find a file or something loading oh, terribly slowly, <laughs> or um, you know, just you know needing to buy something and going somewhere and I need a password and I can't find the password. And then, you know, just, just the sort of the endless little, I, I, I get more, I find I get more triggered by the small things, the bigger things in life. I'm like, it's like the, all the, all the ways that I've trained to surrender and let go, um, seem much more accessible, but it's the small things like, you know, the, interminable amount of time on the computer finding things and um the email the, the oh, relentless man. email inbox um that that uh i find you know i can definitely feel resistance and of course i know 
when I'm feeling that kind of resistance, I'm actually making it worse. But um, yeah, it's um, uh, you know, so it, it's you know, we we all have our places that that are triggering. Yeah, and um, so you know, I noticed that, and then breathe, get up, take a walk, yeah. go, have a cup of tea, and um, you know, so it's, it's, of course we're human, and there's places that are going to annoy us, and of course, relationship is always a great place to practice. Right? There's always ways that one's family, partners, kids, um, you know, push buttons and. Um, so that's always, a, uh, as Ram Dass would say, if you think you're enlightened, go live, go live with your family for a week. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and something else like that, uh, jumps out at me is chapter 10 specifically in the book was something that I really latched onto because it's about the ceaseless conjuring of, of reality and like what is versus what isn't. Um, and I have a quote from the book here that I want to read really quick, and it reads, The world we live in is real, but what we see, think, and believe does not necessarily reflect what is so. We see life through a range of conditioning, bias, and um, projectives, and what we make of experience is affected and often distorted by influences from our past, as well as from the views of family, friends, culture, society, and religion. Now, I can't really pinpoint why precisely this quote resonated so much with me, but I was curious if you can discuss how we can recognize when we are conjuring what isn't versus when we should actually feel aggrieved or angry about certain situations. Does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, again, this is a really rich area of exploration and where as we cultivate mindfulness, self-awareness, we can begin to see um, the layers that we bring to experience that may not necessarily be helpful or accurate. So, um, you know, th- there's a line from the Buddha where he says something like, that which we conceive is ever other than is so. And so, you know, for example, and this is, I think, happens the most in uh, human relationships, you know, maybe we come to work and we're walking into a meeting and somebody gives us a, you know, sort of a slightly unfriendly look. And Mm. we immediately interpret that as, oh, they don't like me, I've done something wrong, Um, maybe they're angry. Um, And then we start, you know, tracking all the things that we might have done or said or didn't do that may have upset this person, particularly if they're in a, you know, position of authority and so we create this whole drama and it may just be that that person that morning who's feeling a little grumpy didn't sleep well has back pain is stressed about their kids graduation that day and it's got completely nothing to do with us but we run a story that ends up being quite painful about you know what we did wrong we're not good enough and you know, maybe our position's a threat. And, and so we create this whole web of drama and sometimes catastrophe uh, in a way that's very unnecessary, that's very energy-consuming and uh, is mostly an illusion. And so we do that all the time in relationship. We do that with experience. We do that with uh, our mind, with our, with our physical 
condition. And so, you know, what, you know, where mindfulness uh, is so helpful is it helps reveal the storytelling mind, the, the interpreting mind, the projecting mind, the, the comparing mind. And, and we see that, that it's, it's mostly fabricated. And when we believe the fabrication, in this world that's often quite distressing. So, you know, so awareness helps cut through that in a way that can bring a lot of relief. You know, so that, you know, the, the, the classic example is the way the mind catastrophizes, right? Maybe we have, a, again, a, twinge in, a twinging sensation in, the, in your back when you're meditating this morning, and maybe you've got a big day at work or you're traveling, or, and, and our mind suddenly spins this whole story about how horrible the day is going to be, and you're not going to be able to travel, and you might need a wheelchair to be wheeled through the airport and all of that drama. And then, you know, you get up and you do some stretching, and then that, and that, um, that particular physical pain wanes it's like okay so that was a whole lot of pain and suffering and anxiety and fear about the future based on a reality that's actually just made up in my head oh the storytelling we tell ourselves it's just it's one of the most difficult parts of being alive i think yeah and it's you know it's it's one of the yeah it's 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 what the mind loves to do well you know the, the brain is an anticipating storytelling machine that, that you know we, we we can create we it's a way we create meaning of the world and it's also a way we create a story that's not necessarily true. And so, and what, one of the main differences I see with someone who's meditated and has a practice is that there's, there's, over time, there's an ability to cut through that level of story, to not buy into the, 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 the stories and the dramas, um, and therefore, you know, have that spaciousness to see, oh, here's a bunch of thoughts that my mind is spinning is and it's not necessarily how life is and it just cuts through a whole level of unnecessary suffering well mark i'm loving this book it's got so many fantastic practical tools and things that people can do in their own lives if they're looking to start trying something as well as some new ideas that maybe people who have a practice haven't looked at before um where can listeners find you if they want to follow your work Sure. So, easiest place is to go to my website, markcoleman.org. That's Mark with a K, Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N.org. And you'll find information there about my retreats, my other books. I run mindfulness teacher trainings. I run meditation and nature teacher trainings. Um, and particularly offer these nature-based retreats all over the country. And so, yeah, just go to markcoleman.org and you'll find all of it there. Fantastic. Well, listeners, you should check out um, Mark's new book, From Suffering to Peace, out now from New World Library. And I'm really enjoying it. And I'm so grateful to you for spending some time with me this morning. Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.